Would you please join me in standing for the reading of God's Word and turning your Bibles to Titus chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, we would encourage you to take one of the chairback Bibles that should be nearby you, and you'll find this morning's text on page 998. It was three weeks ago that we began a series of sermons through this little letter from the Apostle Paul to his good friend Titus, a pastor of the church on the Greek island of Crete. And maybe you've noticed along the way, perhaps maybe in preparation even for our study, you've read through the letter a couple of times, how this letter in a unique way in all the New Testament is a letter that's just full of lists. It seems like one passage after another is simply Paul putting an outline, a bullet point list together for our consideration. So two weeks ago, we thought about qualified leaders, and it was Mark after Mark of qualified leaders. Last week, it was Mark after Mark of false teachers. This week, it's Mark after Mark of what godliness looks like in the church. And so as I read today's passage, which is the first 10 verses of chapter 2, kids, I want you to see if you can notice those marks those characteristics that Paul repeats several times in this passage. There are two in particular you want to pay attention to so you understand the text, and I'll give you a hint that both of them start, at least in the ESV, with the letter S. And so let me read our ten verses and then pray for God to bless our study, and then we will begin. Let's hear now, for Christ is speaking to us through His Word. But as for you... Teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Bondservants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. And Redeemer Church, what do we know about God's Word? The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the Word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray once again together. Father, we thank you that you are a God who is merciful and gracious, that you have united us to your Son, Jesus Christ, so that we who were once strangers and aliens have been made one together in Christ, that we who were once not just opposed to you but opposed to each other are now part of your family. And so we pray that you would help us know what it should look like in our lives to live as your children. So give us grace to hear, give us humility to respond, give us eyes and ears and hearts that are open to the truth. Help me to preach as your word says I must, with integrity and dignity, as we want to see Jesus Christ, even in this list of instructions. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. In one of his more famous articles, the great Princeton theologian B.B. Warfield 
answered and asked the question, is the shorter catechism worthwhile? So if you're new to Presbyterianism, the Westminster Shorter Catechism is, historically speaking, our church's preferred tool, our church's preferred method for training Christians in sound doctrine. And Warfield's asking the question, is it useful? And he subsequently says, yes, it's useful, yes, it's worthwhile. And one of the ways he argued for its usefulness was telling a story of an old U.S. Army general who had visited a city out west. And at this time in the 19th century, it was a little bit of a wild story out west. You know, it was kind of the great frontier and every man for himself. And so he walked into this western city that was very much full, it was said every day, of riotous rebellion, of intense excitement. And in one of the daily uproars, he's there walking through the city streets and this army general sees a man standing out in the crowd. And it wasn't necessarily his height or his physical features that stood out to the army general. It was his sense of calmness and confidence. So as the story goes, the general walks up to this man and pokes him in his chest. And he says, what is the chief end of man? Which is the first question to the shorter catechism. And the man responds, to glorify God and enjoy him forever. To which the general said, ah! I knew you were a shorter catechism boy just by looking at you. (laughs) And the point, which supposedly is a true story, the point is sometimes, isn't it true, that you can predict a person's convictions just by looking at them, by seeing their disposition, by observing their demeanor. That's certainly what Paul means to tell us in our 10 verses this morning at the beginning of chapter 2. He wants to answer questions that the text is asking of us. What does it look like when a Christian is truly devoted to the Lord? What are the indelible marks of grace that Christ cuts into His people that He has saved? And so what you want to see, once again, as we have often mentioned in the past weeks of our studies, is this is a book, this is a letter to Titus that's all about church health. Kids, you may have seen as I read the ten verses, one word that shows up three times is the word sound. It's a word that just means hygienic. It means healthy. Paul is after instruction regarding what a healthy church looks like. And in a unique way in our text this morning, he is indeed helping us understand what might you observe in a church that is healthy. Because for the first chapter, he's been on about healthy leadership, sound leadership. In verses 5 through 9, we saw two weeks ago, he gave us the characteristics of qualified elders. Last week, we saw in verse 10 through 16, he gave us the characteristics of disqualified leaders as he focused on the false teachers. And if you glance back up at verse 11, one thing that Paul said was true of these false teachers in Crete is that they were upsetting whole households. And so it's as though at the beginning of this chapter, he turns his attention to God's household. Here's what it looks like when God's people are turned upright and living lives of godliness unto the Lord. For that is, of course, the theme. You can even see it as a a theme in verse 1, which is something of the masthead for the entire chapter. As Paul tells us that sound doctrine motivates godliness, or you can say it a different way, godliness must accompany sound doctrine. Here's the way I want you to think about it this morning as the main theme of what we're looking at in these 10 verses is practical godliness belongs with sound doctrine. Practical godliness belongs with sound doctrine. 
And you can consider how that works itself out in the Christian life along the way this morning, uniquely as Paul speaks to various groups that are within the church. And so what the Spirit is doing through this text for each one of us in specific ways is he's holding up God's Word as a mirror to see what God is calling of you in terms of the Christ-like image or to reflect to the world. And whenever we run into texts like this, it's always vital for us to remember that we don't want to walk through such a study thinking the majority of the time, I sure hope so-and-so is listening to what Paul is saying, as though your goal is to hold up a mirror in front of someone else's face and heart along the way. Because the Spirit is putting your nose in the book in a unique way this morning, no matter what generation you find yourself in. So you'll notice in verse 1, we get a command about godliness. And then in verse 2 through 10, Paul is just telling us about the culture of godliness in the congregation. So we begin then verse 1 with the command. He begins with a contrast, doesn't he? Verse 1, but as for you, Titus. So to feel the weight of the comparison, just look one verse back, verse 16 of chapter 1, and see what he's just said about the false teachers. He says, they profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. But as for you, Titus, and the you is emphatic, but you, Titus, are to be different. They are detestable, but you are to be holy before the Lord. They are disobedient, but you are to be known for holiness. They are unfit for every good work, but you are to be a model of good works for the entire congregation. Notice how verse 1 continues, but as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. The word there for teach is actually a different one than the one is normally used in the New Testament for this kind of public, declarative, authoritative teaching in the church. That word for teach shows up in verse 7. Uh, This word here is more acutely speaking of just speaking. It's this idea of just an ordinary speech, Titus. As you just go about in your ordinary ministry, day in and day out, week in and week out, speak, he says, what accords with sound doctrine. So students, consider that important phrase there in the beginning, what accords with sound doctrine. What does that mean? Teach what accords with sound doctrine. Other translations, depending on what's in front of you, might say, teach what belongs with sound doctrine, or teach what is fitting to the faith and to the truth. Maybe you can think about it this way. Just as the sense of grief belongs with the tragic loss of a loved one, or just as a sense of satisfaction belongs with a delicious home-cooked meal, or just as a sense of triumph belongs when your team belongs to your team winning the championship. So too does godliness belong with the gospel is what Titus is meant to know. Sound doctrine motivates sound living, and there must be sound living to prove the soundness of the doctrine is what the rest of the text actually says. So that's the command about godliness. And the remainder of the text is all about the culture of godliness that should be present in a healthy church. And if you just kind of look your way through the text once again, you'll notice that there are six different groups of people Paul has in mind in his instruction to Titus. And the first group is older men. You see how verse 3 begins. Older men. 
Now, you want to ask the question, at least I do initially, well, what constitutes older in Paul's mind? It's true. Age seems to be relevant. There was a time in which I thought 35 years old was quite old. <laughs> to some of you, my age might be a marker of my youth. When is a person older in Paul's mind? When is a person younger? Because he's speaking to both groups, specifically in this passage. Well, as best we can tell, if you look at the ancient philosophers and writers of Paul's day, generally speaking, the age of 50 was the line of demarcation. It's not hard and fast, but the age of 50 is the line between older and younger. And it's important for us to note in our culture today that Paul only has two categories of age. We have infants, adolescents, preteens, teenagers, college age, young adults, adults, senior citizens. He only has, you are either older or you are younger. And it begins with the older, 50-plus crowd of men in the church by saying older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled. Sober-minded is a word that's already come up in chapter 1. It's necessary for us to see it as men who recognize that quick indulgences of the flesh never bring true pleasure in life. It is, uniquely speaking to oftentimes, to one's relationship to alcohol, that they are sober towards the fruit of the vine. They're also to be dignified. It's a word that's, I think, lost its meaning in a lot of our culture today. We'll return to it in just a second. But the point you want to see here is dignified is simply a synonym of serious. But it's not a kind of solemnity that never smiles. The idea is someone's bearing, older men, an older man's bearing, disposition, attracts respect. There's this kind of weight to it, which is why older translations would take that word and translate it as grave. They're to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled. You want to circle that word as it is the most repeated word in the entire passage, and we'll turn to it in just a second. So that's the first triad of truths required of the older men, and notice he adds to it another triad in the remainder of the verse. They're to be sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Sound in faith, their belief towards the Lord. In love, not just love for the Lord, but love for one another. But you can think for a second maybe more acutely about this word steadfastness. It can be translated as patience or endurance. Older men who are walking and increasing in godliness, they're to be living models that have recognized the reality that the Christian life is not a sprint, that it's a marathon. They recognize that most of our life in Christ is just patient plodding in the ordinary means of grace, year after year, looking for Christ Jesus' return. So kids, if you wanted to look in the church for what, all kind of the, what are the traditional cardinal virtues of Christianity, faith, hope, and love, Paul is saying you should be able just to go to an older man in the church, spend time with him, speak with him, get to know him, and him get to know you. And some of this godliness ought to rub off in your life together. He speaks to the older men, and secondly, he speaks to the older women. Notice verse 3. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior. The word there for reverence, the only time it shows up in the New Testament. And it seemed to originally convey the idea of behaving like a priestess. Now here's what that probably looks like practically in Paul's mind. An older woman, so practicing the presence of God that all of life is lived as though it's in near constant fellowship with Jesus Christ. That all of life is a sacred assembly unto the Lord. 
But she's also, notice, according to verse 3, not to be a slanderer or slave to much wine. She, too, is not to be addicted to alcohol. That word slanderer is quite striking in the original Greek because it more literally means devilish. Satan is a slanderer. Put in more kind of modern colloquial terms, what Paul has just said, don't be like the devil with your words. Malicious talking, backbiting speech has no place in the church of Jesus Christ. So what kind of language ought to be coming out of older women in the church? Well, notice how verse 3 continues. They are to teach what is good. And it should strike you because you've heard this language before when it went to elders back in chapter 1. Do you see back in chapter 1, in verse 8, he's obviously to be a teacher, a lover of good. They know what is profitable, older women in the church. They know what is healthy. They know what is edifying. And if you speak with them, what ordinarily comes out of their mouth? It's not language that mirrors the great adversary of God's people, but truth that mirrors the Son who has saved God's people. They are lovers of good. And so, verse 4, they train the young women. So he moves kind of effortlessly, doesn't he, from the group of older women to younger women. And this word train is actually a verb form of self-control. One commentator says, wise them up is what older women are to do to younger women. It's the idea of control their minds in your earnest encouragement to live according to the way of the Lord, to live according to the conformity of Jesus Christ. So he's, again, Switching his attention now from one group to the next in quite rapid-fire form. And notice what he requires of the younger women. They're to love, first of all, their husbands and children. In the Greek, there's actually the word love repeated twice to emphasize its importance. Love your husbands and love your children. Sometimes in our context today, we think that such an encouragement and command might be a little bit misplaced. But remember the nature of marriage in the first century. In our culture today, it's presumed that love will precede marriage. Rarely did that happen in Paul's world, where arranged marriages were still somewhat quite common. Spouses learned to love each other over the years, after they got married. Not learning to love each other before they got married. Love your husband. Love your children. And as the list continues, verse 5, be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands. So look down at verse 5 again. Is there anything that strikes you as quite out of step with our cultural moment, our politically correct world in the West? Probably the last clause, isn't it? At least most immediately. Be submissive to their own husbands. We do always need to remember, don't we, that God has designed and decreed marriage to be something particularly reflecting His glory. Not only has He decreed that marriage is to be between one man and one woman, He's decreed a particular role. He's assigned a particular function to each spouse, that the husband is the head of the home, and that the wife is the helper, submissive to their own Husbands, important to recognize there, as it's speaking about the personal relationship with their spouse. That God has decreed such assigned functions and decreed such roles in marriage of head and helper, not just for the good of the home, but obviously for the good of the spouse. Don't you know, whenever we walk in the paths of godliness and obedience, we're walking in God's pleasure for our lives. And part of that pleasure, which does speak consistently against our culture, is wives are to love their own husbands 
and be submissive to them. But verse 5 gives us another phrase that's out of step with our time, doesn't it? When he says, working at home. Younger women are to focus on the home. So this, of course, doesn't speak directly to the experience of single mothers. Single mothers were not nearly as common in the first century as they are in our day today. Single mothers, of course, today in our contemporary context must make an income outside of the home. Paul, of course, isn't saying that young women may not make an income outside of the home. He's not saying that younger women can have no interests outside of the home. One scholar says the right way to understand this simple qualification is they are to be home lovers, that their orientation is towards the home, that their orientation is towards their family, training and nurturing their children, serving and leading with their husbands. And so kids, what you want to think about when you see commands like this, God placed significance on your mothers and how they relate to you. Uh, what you need to see is your mother's care for you is one way God cares for you. It's why you are commanded to obey your parents in the Lord, for they are delegates of God's authority in your life. And those of you in here who are younger mothers, it's an encouragement, isn't it, to persevere in the steadfast, often tiring work of parenting children. One of my favorite authors on mothering, she's written a few good books on it, and one of them I remember a particular quote from where she speaks of her younger days as a mother and says, the fastest years of my life were full of the longest days in history. <laughs> and those of you who are younger mothers knows what she means. Those of you who are older mothers remember what she means. And we want a culture, don't we? that speaks to mothers, that teaches mothers, that trains mothers to persevere in the patience of loving their children, loving their homes, trusting that in God's providence, that's the ordinary way that spiritual fruit will flow into the household itself. So he speaks to older, men, older women, younger women, and now in verse 6, he turns his attention to the younger men. Some of you know the name J.C. Ryle. He was one of the best-known English preachers of the 19th century. He was a, eventually a bishop of the church in Liverpool in the Church of England, and he was well-known on both sides of the Atlantic, largely for his writing ministry. Uh, much of his books are still in print today. They continue to edify Christians around the world. And One of his more well-known and beloved books was one he wrote in 1865, and it was titled Thoughts for Young Men. And along the way, he gets to this second section in his book, which he says, or he titles at least, Dangers for Young Men, the Common Pitfalls, the Popular uh, Places Where Young Men Seem to Fall. And his second danger for young men is that they are lovers of pleasure. And in that section, he essentially writes a question. If you go to the average young man, so again, this is 1860s in England. If you go to the average young man today and ask him, who is your servant and master? If they are being honest, what he says is, they will say, I serve lusts and pleasure, such as the nature of a young man. And it's important for us to consider what he says, because Ryle takes that little booklet as little more than an expansion of Titus chapter 2, verse 6, applied to young men. Because notice what he says, first of all, related to Titus's ministry to these young men. Likewise, urge the younger men. That, that verb, urge, it kind of had a legal overtone and undertone to it. It's this kind of legal summons in the courtroom. There's authority. There's earnestness. There is a summons to the young men. 
And make sure you kind of piece together what Paul's doing in this passage. He speaks to the older men. Six things I'm calling you to be in Jesus Christ. He speaks to the older women. Five things I'm calling you to be in Jesus Christ. To the younger women, seven things I'm calling you to be in Jesus Christ. To the young men, just one thing I'm calling you to be in Jesus Christ. Notice what it is, our word again, be self-controlled. Be self-controlled. Like, you know, old cars used to have governors that would limit the vehicle's velocity. So too are young men in Jesus Christ have spiritual governors on their heart that limit the lusts and passions and pleasures that so often define young men. They are to be under control of the Spirit. They're not to be given over to lusts, not to be given over to outbursts, not to be given over to passions and pleasures. They're not to be this like boiling pot of passions that's always about ready to burst and flow over, such as the sin within their life. Rather, it's to be submitted to the Spirit. And so in one way, it's striking to me that Paul doesn't demand much from young men. Be self-controlled. But at another level, perhaps you know this, he demands much from young men. Be self-controlled. He's demanded it of elders. He's demanded it of older men. He's demanded it of younger women. He's demanded it of older women. There is something about self-control in the Christian life that uniquely signals love for Jesus Christ. So if you are a younger man in here, that's the mirror you put before yourself. And gratefully, because we are simple people, aren't we? There's just one reflection we're growing into according to this instruction of Paul. The self-control of Jesus Christ himself. So those are the generations. Four generations that he mentions in the passage. And in the remainder, he speaks of two vocations. The first of which is gospel ministers. Because look at verse 7 and 8. He now speaks to Titus directly. He says, show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. So first of all, you're to be a pattern of godliness. You're to be a model, a type, a mold around which the congregation can see what it means to live faithfully in Jesus Christ. But not just are you to be a pattern of godliness, you're to be a preacher of godliness. Look at how the text continues. He says, in your teaching, so that's now speaking of authoritative, public, declarative teaching, Show integrity, dignity, and sound speech. Surely we know what many of those words would look like practically. Integrity speaks of wholeness. Sound speaks of healthiness. But again, this word has showed up earlier with the older men. Timothy, I'm sorry, Titus is to be an example of dignity. This serious weight and gravity of godliness attending his teaching. It reminds me of a time when I read a sermon from Martin Lloyd-Jones on the book of Romans. And if you know anything about that great 20th century Welsh preacher, you know that he preached through Romans over a period of years and years and years. said many things from his studies of Romans. And early on in that series, he was in Romans chapter 1, and he said this about gospel ministers today, thinking about the weight of glory demanded of pastors in their preaching. He says, I confess freely... I cannot understand a jocular evangelist. So kids, that means a joking preacher. Go back and read the lives of the men whom God has used in the mightiest manner, and you will invariably find that they were serious men, sober men, men with the fear of the Lord in them. That would be men of dignity, weight, and gravity in their teaching. 
And did you know that you as church members can very much help your pastors and church leaders be men of dignity in preaching? It comes to what your expectations are from the preacher. We do have a culture today in America that seems to expect the best preachers to be little more than Christian comics standing on a stage on Sunday morning entertaining the crowds. When God wants a man gripped by the love of Jesus Christ, heralding the good news of Jesus Christ with the weight of eternity hanging in the balance. And you can encourage that. You can pray for that. You can give kind words when you see that so that your ministers and church leaders would be dignified in their instruction. So the final section of this passage deals with slaves. Verses 9 and 10, the second vocation, is what the ESV at least renders that of bond servants, but it more literally and originally meant slaves. And so maybe you're like many Christians throughout the ages that have wondered, as you read the New Testament, well, why is it that the apostles seem to tolerate slavery, never outright calling for its abolition? Clearly, he's not doing it in our passage here in verse 9 and 10 of Titus 2. Well, what you want to know is certainly the context of slavery in the first century is quite different than slavery as practiced in America. That great stain that's been on our country for so many years and centuries now. In the ancient world, it wasn't man-stealing like it was in America. Uh, these were men and women that were ordinarily indentured servants, that they were going into slavery to remove a debt, or they were captives of war who were serving a particular family or place of influence. They also were allowed rights that slaves in our country weren't allowed. They could hold property. They could marry. They could be educated. Not infrequently, some of the best master tutors in the ancient world were actually slaves. But what you do need to see, especially as Paul speaks about it to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 1, he recognizes the error of the ways because even if the slavery was different in the first century than it was in our country in years and centuries past, it still was a situation, a vocation that was limited in its freedom. That he's writing here to bondservants, to slaves that were in a hard place in life. And it should strike you in verse 9 and 10 what you're getting ready to see he requires of slaves is that in that hard situation, Paul still says there is no excuse to live contrary to the gospel of Jesus Christ. No matter the hard place you might find yourself in, you must still be faithful. So what does faithfulness look like for these slaves? Well, notice how verse 9 continues. Bondservants are to be submissive to their own masters and everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering. Kids, that means not stealing, but showing all good faith. Uh, they're to be reliable. They're to be respectful. And surely those things ought to be true of every Christian worker throughout any century as we look for Jesus' return, reliability and respectfulness coming in our employment. So these are the generations and the vocations that Paul speaks to about godliness. This is the kind of culture of godliness that he's expecting in the church, the kind of practical godliness that belongs with the gospel. I remember reading an article probably five or six years ago, sometime in the relative recent memory of U.S. Olympic swimmer Natalie Coughlin. 
And it was during the Summer Olympic Games, and the interviewer was trying to get to know from her perspective what life was like in the Olympic Village. And for one reason or another, the focus of the article was on that most famous and exclusive of places in the Olympic Village, which is its cafeteria, wanting to know what it was like to be in that room with all of the world-class athletes. And so along the way, Natalie Coughlin spoke about her joy in sitting back after finishing a meal. And she would just sit back in her chair, look around the table, and people watch the crowds passing in and out of the Olympic Village cafeteria because she said, what I love to do is play this game where I try to guess the athlete's sport based on the body type. And I presume, you know, for reasons of height that she said basketball players are the easiest to predict. Again, she's saying something that's quite true of what Paul's after in our text. People stand out for various reasons. Christians are to stand out to be in a good way, predictable about the kind of life they live in Jesus Christ, the kind of older man that he is, the kind of older woman that she is, the kind of younger woman, younger man that they are, that Christ might be honored and exalted in their lives. But maybe you notice as we walk through the text that I did leave off three different parts of the passage, three different purpose clauses that show up. If you look down again at verse 5, verse 8, in verse 10, 5, 8, and 10, now students will notice that at the end of each of those verses, we either get a word, that, or words, so that. Paul is telling us not only that there's this command about godliness for a culture of godliness, he's telling us in the passage that there are consequences of godliness, good consequences. And I want to mention the three of them as we begin to close, the first of which is godliness commends the gospel. You see how verse 5 ends. He's speaking of the godliness of younger women. And he says at the end of verse 5, that the word of God may not be reviled. More literally means blasphemed. That the word of God might not be blasphemed. Put on these spiritual fruits of holiness in your life. In ways that we sadly maybe don't always appreciate as Christians, unbelievers can see right through the veneer of hypocrisy, when one's life is inconsistent with one's confession. And Paul here is saying, no, we keep him consistent, that there is a kind of godliness that accords with sound doctrine, that the gospel demands a particular way of life. And so as holiness grows, as righteousness increases, as godliness flourishes, part of what happens is that godliness commends the gospel. People begin to love God's word not loathe it because of the example of God's children. Number two, godliness protects the gospel. Look at the end of verse 8. He's speaking again to gospel ministers, pastors, church leaders. They're to have sound speech. That cannot be condemned so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. You know, sometimes I have young seminary students come up to me and they tend to ask early on in their pastorate, so maybe they're just out of seminary, hey, what do you do with all the criticism you face in the church? And in our sin, isn't it true that we as leaders and we as even Christians want to respond with self-justifying remarks, self-justifying statements, when over and over in ways we must remember, the New Testament is telling us just increase in godliness. 
And what you will find is that integrity and wholeness of life in Christ tends to protect the gospel that you proclaim. And not just that, it protects you as a gospel minister from opposition that you will face. Because some of you in here today, I know for a fact, you are maybe praying through, pursuing the gospel ministry in time. We have quite a few seminary students in our church studying for the gospel ministry. Uh, what you do need to know is that the New Testament makes painfully clear you will have lots of pain in ministry. And we do know this, don't we? In every vocation and job that we have as we're waiting for Christ's return, uh, we know that there will be opposition and accusation along the way. You know this. Some of you, for decades and decades, you've endured it. What you want to know about the pastoral ministry, what's unique about it, is the backstabbing comes from Christians who profess faith in Jesus Christ. And what's going to protect you help you persevere is this radical simplicity of ordinary godliness that accompanies sound doctrine. So godliness commends the gospel, protects the gospel, and number three, finally, it beautifies the gospel. Do you see how verse 10 ends? The godliness of these slaves. Such an amazing clause worth underlining and meditating on with a Christian later today or this week. Grow in godliness in your bond servitude, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior. This word adorn, it's the one from which we get our English word of cosmetics. Kids, what, what Paul is essentially saying here is godliness makes the gospel awesomely attractive. Just as lights and ornaments adorn a Christmas tree, so too is godliness to adorn the gospel, make it beautiful for the watching world. So we have a command, teach what accords with sound doctrine. We have a culture of godliness required of everyone. We have these consequences, wonderful consequences that godliness as it's flourishing and growing in our lives commends, protects, and adorns the gospel. So I wonder, maybe you've put up with the Spirit's help that kind of mirror of God's Word. Here's what's required of me as an older man or a younger woman. And I suppose whenever you kind of lift that type of mirror of Scripture before your soul, there's a various response that might strike your mind and heart. Maybe you put up the mirror before yourself and you're so well aware of how far you have fallen short in godliness. And that's a good thing. The Spirit means to convict you today, but He doesn't want to leave you there. He wants you to remember the comforts of Jesus Christ. Or maybe you put up the mirror and you say, how is that ever going to happen in my life? I know the stain and iniquity of my own heart, and there's no way that could ever be true of me. Hey, Spirit wants you to feel that conviction too. But also remember the comforts of Jesus Christ. For surely it's of no small significance what comes in verse 11 and 12 that, Lord willing, we look at next week. For, you see that in verse 11? For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us, verse 12 as it continues, to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. The depth of your love for Jesus Christ will show forth the depth of your devotion in the fruits of the Spirit. Practical godliness belongs with the gospel. And what Paul then leads us to in the remainder of chapter 2, Lord willing again to be seen next Lord's Day, what Paul leads us to is the comfort of Jesus Christ that the gospel of Jesus Christ makes practical godliness possible in the lives of God's people. Let's pray together.
Father, we do thank you for your mercy, for your grace. We thank you for your strength. That you are able to make us steadfast and immovable. That you are able to make us grow in the fruits of the Spirit. You are able to make us shine forth the image of Christ. And so we pray that you would help us do that as a congregation. That in every station where we find ourselves, every situation that we are in, even this week and this morning, that you would help us to grow in the truthfulness, the honesty, and the humility that's required of God's people. We pray that you would do it so that the gospel might be proclaimed in our lives, might be protected in our life together. And we do pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this is